Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, our guest is Malik Amrani, founder and winemaker of The Vice Napa Valley Wines. And we'll be discussing how to take a classic region like Napa Valley and reposition it for the millennial and Gen Z drinkers. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Malik, can you please give me and Peter a brief overview of your background? Sure. So uh, I'm Malik Amrani. I was born in Morocco, Casablanca, Morocco, and I graduated high school at 16. Went to medical studies in Senegal, West Africa for one year and decided it wasn't for me. So I moved to New York at the age of 17 and decided to chase a career in wine. Between the age of 17 and 21, I worked in the restaurant world. And at the age of 21, I took on a distribution job for Diageo and LVMH or Moa Hennessy, the spirits and wine sides of their portfolios. And over time, I got involved with the direct import of wines from all over the world. And decided to uh, start making wine in uh, 2013 as a hobby and named that hobby the vice here we are today so where does that name come from so the vice really comes from my vice of wine my number one vice is wine so um, decided to name my vice for wine and specifically napa valley wine the vice so napa valley has become notoriously famous for really expensive wines, you know, the U.S.'s most premium wine growing region. And it becomes really hard to find a good quality a Cabernet under $100 these days. This has meant that Napa wines have been largely purchased by older and wealthier generations like the baby boomers. And you're trying to make Napa more accessible to younger generations. One way you're doing that is through pricing, but you have Appalachian red wine starting at $29 a bottle. How are you able to do that where others are not? Well, so many ways. The first thing we focus on value. So very small margins, but we focus on high volume. So typically you have the average winery in Napa Valley, about 80% of wineries in Napa, their total production is 5,000 cases. Our number one skew, which is the house Cabernet Sauvignon in Napa Valley, is an 11,000 case production. Our total production is 27,000 cases. But one thing that kind of differentiates us from most of wineries also in Napa Valley or in the United States or around the world is that we make wines from so many subregions of Napa and so many different varietals. To date, we have made 18 different varietals from 14 of 16 Napa subregions. So we basically break down Napa Valley to the subregion that it has and offer so many small batches, 100% varietal wines. That help us not only make new friends, but also help people discover Napa Valley beyond just Cabernet or Sauvignon Blanc or Chardonnay. And so my understanding is, is all the fruit then sourced and purchased from different farmers around the valley? I will say most of our wines are Napa Valley wines. I've made a couple of wines that are just Russian River, a Pinot Noir and a Chardonnay. And that really had to do with not having any fruits whatsoever during the 2021 vintage from one of our growers for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. So we decided to make Russian River wines, which is right next door to Napa Valley. And are you always buying fruit or are you buying juice as well? Are you buying wines already made and then doing things like the blending? How are you operating? I certainly do both. Like most of wineries here in Napa Valley, everybody's trading with each other, grapes, wine, you know, and I certainly take advantage of both. One way that really helped me maintain cost over the years is that For example, when you're buying grapes in in this industry, 
typically, you know, there's a contract, you purchase grapes, you pay basically a deposit or you pay, you pay maybe a third or half of uh, what the grape costs during harvest when you first pick them. And then the balance in the new year. For us at Device, you know, we took advantage of, we really were able to secure pricing by actually prepaying for the grapes while they're still hanging on the vines. So it's almost as if we're buying fish while we'll we'll it's still swimming in the ocean. That way it's going to like guarantee us we're going to get the best quality fruit and also the best value. Got it. So just so I understand, so you said overall your production, your annual production is around 27,000 cases. Correct. But your main flagship, kind of the wine you're known for is the house wine, which is around 11,000 cases. And so does that mean that the rest of them are all small batches inside of that? Or do you have another big skew as well? So the house tier, which is Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, Sauvignon Blanc, orange wine, and a little bit of rosé, the house here is about 65% of our portfolio. Another 30% of our portfolio is the single vineyard tier. And that's where we kind of make at least 20 wines a year. Most of these single vineyard wines, they are 150 to like 450 case production. So they are really small batch, small production wines. Not all of them make it to every market. You know, they're very market specific or they're very direct to consumer just through our website and wine club exclusive. And then yearly, we have an ultra premium release, which is very small production. And it's usually the apex of our portfolio that we release on a yearly basis. So are there other ways you're able to keep costs lower to make it more price, more approachable? Because Napa Cabernet can average close to $10,000 a ton now in the county. And that's like $17 a bottle. So are there other ways that you're able to keep costs and therefore price down? Yeah, proactivity. You have to be proactive. Like, for example, prices really started to creep up in 2020. Following 2018 was the largest vintage of all time. 2019 was a really large vintage, almost 40% more than average. And then 2020, Prices started to go up, especially with fires. One thing, for example, during fires, I was driving around my pickup truck and cutting checks to people in southern Napa, where there were no fires in Carneros, Coonsville, and Oaknall, and grabbing as many tons of fruit as I can. In 2021 as well, I keep my eyes really close to the market, and I have really good relationships with a lot of uh, vintners. But I'm also a spot buyer, you know, like I, I take advantage of being able to pay cash and pay upfront and pay at the right time as well. It's certainly a gamble. Sometimes you can't just wait until right before harvest and think that there will be grapes waiting for you. But, you know, doing this for almost 10 years now, I've secured so many relationships with uh, growers and I required a knowledge of when to buy and when to make moves and when not. Another thing when it comes to really reducing costs or keeping costs low is to really, and it's very important thing in the wine industry, is actually dry goods. Dry goods fluctuation, especially again, the last three years with the COVID disruptions and supply chain disruptions that we had. You know, at one point, I felt like I was a glass hunter. Like I was talking to 12 or 15 different glass suppliers and distributors at the same time. And, you know, like prices did go up almost 300% for like our glass, certain glass that we used to buy by the container. And it still hasn't come down for more than 200% what it used to be three years ago. But once again, being able to uh, 
stay on top of it and never like blinking on it because there's always someone that trying to turn their inventory and someone that will try to sell their product to a reliable producer that's going to pay on time and or even prepay them. So how is that proactivity important for a situation like 2020 where there's a ton of fires in Napa? It's everything. Honestly, it's, it made our vintage, well, what happened 2020 before the fires as you know, consumption of wine in the United States really took off, you know, with COVID and, you know, whatever, you know, what happened and people were home and, but the demand was up and the demand was up as well in 2021, but the supply due to the fires was inexistent almost as at times. Proactivity was everything. It really made our vintage because I was able to grab so much tonnage at a really good price and grapes that were not smoke tainted. And people really were scared that they were going to be smoke tainted. And we got them tested. And our wines, all our wines that are released is absolutely no, no trace of smoke whatsoever. So it was one of the best gambles that we've taken. And it helped us grow tremendously from I'll say a small winery to a medium-sized winery now. And from the sales side, do you sell through distribution and like retail or is it all direct to consumer? It's a very good question. So our sales channels are really focused on the wholesale. We focus on volume. So we focus on wholesale. And I personally, again, work a lot of markets. So the last six, seven years, I spent no less than three quarters of the time outside of Napa traveling around the country and work in markets myself, meeting distributors, meeting retailers, and building the brand that way. Going back to 2020, for example, and this is why sales are extremely important, and it's kind of like important to go against the grain. When most people were not traveling, we were deemed essential as an industry, agriculture, and you know, we are part of agriculture, but we were deemed essential. I traveled every single month in 2020, except the month of April. And I was constantly going to the East Coast and Texas and other markets and meeting with retailers when no distributors, salespeople, suppliers were out there. My success rate was 100%. There wasn't someone that I met with that, you know, in certain markets that didn't end up buying our wines within a couple of months. We picked up almost 400 retailers in Metro New York alone in 2020 and other markets as well. So going back to your question, we are, I'll say, 80% three-tier system. We go through wholesale distribution channel and our wine club subscription service and uh, DTC. is. We've built it really in 2020 and 2021, and we're just kind of like maintaining and organically growing it right now. So I'm curious, outside of the price point, actually, maybe we can back up. I'm curious, for your consumers that are buying your wine, do you know how many of your consumers are millennial and Gen Z? Yes. So it really depends on the market. But overall, we are really equally split between baby boomers, Generation X, and then I we kind of like package it together, millennials and Gen Z together, because Gen Z is still very small. It's still entering, you know, the legal drinking age as a segment. And the beauty of our portfolio is that we have so many varietals that we see certain varietals really click with certain demographics. For example, orange wine that we make, and right now it's up to about 3,500 cases between two SKUs, orange of Givestrini and orange of Viognier. 
that is 75% millennial Gen Z. And then I'll say almost all the balance is Generation X that are just curious that they haven't had an orange wine before. And, you know, they discover it's all new discovery to them. Well, our single vineyard tier, Cabernet, I will tell you that almost 85% of our sales are going to baby boomers and Generation X. And millennials are really not stepping up to the higher price points. They're still consuming and enjoying our house Pinot, house Cab, house Sauvignon Blanc. It's a pretty healthy balance. It was a strategy for us since day one. It is a lot of work. It's a tremendous amount of micro-fermentations during harvest and constantly bottling almost every six weeks, bottling different SKUs. But it really helped us make a lot of friends throughout the country, even internationally. We have, you know, international consumers in Korea and Japan, and it's paying off. Yeah, it's interesting that you mention both the split with it because Gen X, it seems like everybody talks about baby boomers and millennials. Baby boomers not buying as much and, and millennials not drinking as much. No one really talks about Gen X, which is, you know, my generation. <laughs> and so I feel like we don't get the love. But I am curious, though, what are the keys? And I love the breakdown of how the different SKUs resonate towards different generations and that the fact that you know that. That's super interesting to me. But I am curious, what do you think is a keys for success in terms of communicating to the millennial Gen Z group that you've grouped together? Is it just price or is there something more to it that is helping you resonate with that group? Well, <laughs> pricing certainly is up there. It starts with pricing. Like for example, in the retail channel, most of wine purchases, you know, the consumer walks into a store they have an idea in their mind how much they're going to be spending. They may not be decided yet on the varietal, although most of the time they kind of know if they're going to be buying a white wine, red wine, Sauvignon Blanc, or is it which direction they're going. But nobody walks into a store planning to spend $15 and walks out a $250 Napa cap. So price is very important. But Communication really comes down to authenticity, being yourself and as a brand, you know, not trying to pretend to be something that you're not. Being authentic, that's what I mean with that. And most importantly, don't be sales driven. I know this is like anti-everything, like what people will tell you when it comes to sales and marketing. It's really not about making the sale at the moment. Like everything that we do a device for us right now, my background was always let's say this amount of cases this year, let's produce this amount of cases, let's, you know, let's reach this revenue. And for the past few years, and specifically this year, 2023, our business plan for the whole year was just to be, okay, let's stay cash flow positive and let's continue to do the right thing. You know, building the outreach, building an organic base of consumer, because we're not playing a finite game of, we're going to have to hit this case goal this year. And then what? We're really in this for a very long term as an infinite goal. So to answer your question, I think the best thing to do is really not to get stuck in the calendar. And although we are, everything we do is calendar driven, the year, the months, the week, the days, you know, there is, the, <laughs> we got to pay certain things within a calendar cycle. But when it comes specifically, I think, especially in the wine industry, you have to have an open approach that is not calendar driven whatsoever and that is more long-term base than short-term goal driven. Got it. And I'm curious, do these three major consumer groups care if the wines come from Napa or somewhere like Sonoma or Sierra Foothills or in general, just California? Like how much do they care about Appalachian? Yeah. So baby boomers for sure do care about the AVA, the Appalachian. They've 
lived through this renaissance of the American wine industry that was led by Napa Valley that really started in the mid-70s. So they kind of understand the importance of Napa Valley. A lot of them have been to Napa. So the sense of place is extremely important. Generation X is Napa Valley represent to them also not only the sense of place, but also a symbol of status, a place for quality, you know, a guaranteed quality to them. And it is quite important to them. I think for the Gen Z and the millennials, Napa may not be as significant to them because there are immersion regions like Paso and maybe uh, North Coast because they are price driven. But I think eventually over time, Napa continues to be the leading wine region in the United States in terms of quality production and especially in, for tourism. This region still gets 4 million tourists a year and it's equipped for that lifestyle to visit the region and the wineries. And I think millennials and Generation Z may start with other regions, but eventually they'll uh, discover Napa because Napa, as I said, it does remain the summit of the American wine industry. Got it. And so with 80% of your business going through distribution, I am curious on the retail customers that are carrying your wines. Are they grabbing kind of the, starting with the house tier and then working their way up into the smaller batches or are they starting with some of the more unusual wines? What's the average purchase look like from a retail customer? Yeah, so it changes from market to market. And it's funny because certain markets, you would expect certain varietals and certain volume and certain tiers to do better than others. And it tends to be quite the opposite. For example, Florida and Texas, they're very driven with these single vineyard wines, you know, the middle and the higher end tier, although the house tier does perform really well. When we look at Northeast, driven by New York, you know, as a market, it's very house tier base and the single vineyard tier are quite secondary. It's almost as they are their own separate brand. In California, there's a good mix. In Colorado, there's a good mix as well. But also when it comes to varietals, you know, you'll expect in Florida, they'll be drinking a lot more white wine and rosé because of the heat all year long. But <laughs> it's not the case. It's a red wine state. They, they drink a lot more red wine than uh, probably any of the market of ours. And I think that's probably has to do with also the baby boomers that, that are the main consumer in Florida. I'm just curious if you have any examples of, as you get orders back for repeat purchases from your retailers, are you ever surprised about what they, you know, repeat order from you the second time around or the third time around? You're like, oh, I was never expecting them to buy so much orange wine or so much of this. This is our current conversation. We started making orange wine, for example, with two SKUs and it was like 300 case production. You know, we are at 10 times the amount right now, and it's quite interesting and scary at the same time because a market like New York, last month, looking at the numbers, following them on a daily basis, the orange wine almost, almost outsold the house cap. And it's April, it's just the beginning of spring, and seeing such skew explode in a market like New York is great, but... We do have also, we make a lot of Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Noir, Rosé, and other varietals that we, we want to sell. So it's, um, it's, you can't really, sometimes you can't really predict trends. You just have to adapt and be able to react and allocate certain SKUs to certain markets. And unfortunately, sometimes you have to cut an item or a SKU or varietal from a market to continue building in another one. 
but a lot of that is also relationship driven. And what's an example of a variety that you've had to remove from production that just wasn't selling? A varietal had to move from production. You know, it's not a varietal, it's a category. We used to make, it's like almost we swapped our orange wine business for rosé. We used to make almost 3,000 cases of rosé. And back in 2020, with the on-premise shutting down, and I think rosé to me hit the ceiling in 2019, and it really took off, started taking off in 2009, and it had a decade of just growth. You know, like, this just maybe my personal opinion, but a lot was driving rosé was that social aspect. People drink rosé at home and on their own, but I don't think, like, they drank as much rosé by themselves as within groups, you know, together. And I think the pandemic really like put rosé to the side. And actually, that's why orange wine actually started taking off because people realized that the wine rainbow had more than just white, pink and red. Actually, there is orange color as well and vino verde, green and other things. And people really got to expand, especially the younger consumer, expand their palate. So we... We're actually making a lot less rosé now. We're only making 400 cases of rosé. And personally, I'd rather not compete in that entire segment because it got so overloaded with a rosé. It just means pink and French. And it's like you can make a wine pink so many ways, you know, whether you're making it by saignet or whatever method you make in rosé. So they were over time, there's so many people that never made rosé. They just wanted to get into the category and it was whatever white wine they have and that turned pink and here we go, here's your pink wine. And what really hurts rosé is that the way they were pushing it in the early days, you got to pre-order it before spring because you have the new vintage coming in from Provence and the industry did it to itself because when now you had so much inventory that you were sitting on then the following year or the following season, you were still sitting on last year's inventory where you have new inventory coming in. And what that did was a lot of closeouts. I mean, there were some great pink wines that I think they can age really well that were going for discounts and wholesale or closeout for two, three dollars a bottle. And that doesn't build a brand that actually destroys the brand and it hurts the entire category. So the best example, honestly, is rosé. We're almost out of rosé completely. Wow. And so I know you've got some experience. You mentioned earlier selling spirits of Moy, Hennessy, and Diageo from your days at Empire Merchants. What sales and marketing techniques have you brought over from that experience? There's so many things. Honestly, the base of what I do when it comes to sales is basically what I've learned over a decade doing sales for some of the very best brands in the world. Some of those techniques, again, goes back to me personally, goes back to authenticity, long-term approach. Don't be too pushy, just trying to hit, just trying to sell and run make the sale that makes sense for the retailer or the consumer. Don't just try to make the sale. And a lot of things that we actually do right now at the Vice, you know, I found my, I was cycling this morning and I found myself thinking about one topic and how am I going to do this and solve this problem I have. And I just sit back and I said, you know, on the saddle, I was, I'm right. And I said, what would Moa Hennessy do in this case? You know, will they really jeopardize the brand or will they try to stay true to the luxury? They try to suit it to the authenticity of the brand and maintain their position and do it differently. So 
to really deconstruct to you the sales on a day-to-day basis, honestly, would take not hours, but also probably days of not teaching, but really sharing certain sales techniques and certain um, fundamentals that need to be applied on a daily basis to be able to grow. Were there things that spirits companies did or do that wine businesses generally don't do? The one thing I've noticed in the spirits industry is, uh, (laughs) this is kind of like go back to us also with having so many SKUs and so many varietals. When I first started selling spirits, vodka was two flavors, three flavors. You know, there was absolute citron, kettle one citron also. There was stoli orange was the orange. And by the time I left, you know, they were over 100 flavors. Smirnoff on its own had over 40 flavors from root beer to cotton candy to, I don't even know. At one point, we were releasing a flavor every single month. So that was innovation. And at the time, there was the only flavored whiskey was maybe there were a couple, but they were so small. But the one that was popping was fireball cinnamon. God, now today there is peanut butter. I don't even know. I, I don't keep it. I don't keep track of how many flavors they are out there. But that's something that Spirits Company did. They learned how to adapt to a very fast changing industry, all of it, because before like growing up personally, at home there was gin, Sambuca, uh, maybe a vodka. There weren't many options if I wanted to taste or discover something. And today there are unlimited flavors, but that didn't happen overnight. They pushed for that. They created the abundance of options that really gave the consumer the option to today drink a banana-infused whiskey, I guess, tomorrow, an IPA, the next day, an orange wine. So there are so many options out there and the industry continues to grow. For us, when we were creating the vice, the vision was to break down Napa Valley into the sub-regions to help people discover Napa like nobody else. Because that was a problem for me when I wanted to discover Napa Valley. I had to go to so many different wineries and buy wine from so many different producers when I couldn't find one single producer that will help me discover Napa Valley as an entire region. And also a producer that will help me discover Napa Valley beyond just Cabernet, Chardonnay on the classic varietals. So I kind of was craving to find a small producer that I can establish a trust that will help me, guide me, you know, or help me discover one Napa Valley, do it on a budget and also through so many varieties. So that really does resonate with the spirits industry to me by the consumer having so many different palettes, so many different taste profiles and being able to make these innovations and see what sticks around in a sense. So are there things that spirits companies do to market their products that you think doesn't work for wine? Yeah, so this is actually quite an interesting that came up a lot lately for me with Napa Valley Vintners here. So they're actually two very different things. The spirits, really, when you think spirits, you really think macro, you think the big guys. You think of the Constellation, the Diageo, the, the Beam Centauri of the world, the big producers. And those big producers, they kind of, they succeeded in the, actually, the, in the spirits industry. When you look at the wine industry, it's the complete opposite. 
Diageo tried to be in wine, didn't succeed. Coca-Cola tried, did not succeed. Yolda, they're not spirits company. Disney tried, Pepsi tried. And what I mean, the very big companies try to get into this industry, did not succeed because truly this is an industry that thrives on that family small business, family base industry, you know, even like Gallo, the largest wine, one of the largest, if not the largest wine company in the world, it's still a family business. We can argue that LVMH, you know, Moa Hennessy is also a family business and Arno is majority shareholder. But I think the spirits in the wine industry actually are quite opposite when it comes to marketing. And I think the spirits industry, a lot of the things they've done was just go big and throw a lot of money, a lot of millions and millions of dollars of advertising money into building and growing a brand and vice versa. I feel like going back to my days, the grassroots of Don Julio Tequila, for example, or Bullet Bourbon was actually quite the opposite of anything else that Diageo was doing. It was not growing. We did not grow the brand. For many years, I was the top sales person in Metro New York on premise for Bullet and Don Julio. And it wasn't thanks to the advertising dollars. It was by selling one bottle at a time to each on-premise outlet that became two bottles, that became six bottles, that became case orders over time. It was built with through the gatekeepers, through staff trainings, through really making a bond with the people that actually matter in this industry, that in a sense that they're the ones pouring the product, that are passionate about the product. So I think if I'm answering your question, if I had to sum it up, I think the spirits in the wine industry are quite opposites when it comes to marketing. And I think taking a spirits approach and applying it to wine is a guaranteed recipe for failure. So bringing it back to Vice, I am curious, how do people typically hear about the vice for the first time? It really depends on the market. You know, there's so many ways. The past few years, and I'll say, really, if I just want to go back to 20 and 2021, we were spending heavily on Google ads and Meta, which is now Meta, Facebook, Instagram ads, and we saw great return. And then when the uh, private privacy laws changed in September 2021, we kind of had to shift direction on our approach on how we were investing and spending advertising dollars. But that's really not what the base of the way we attract our consumers. A lot of it is word to mouth. A lot of it is referral. A lot of it is retail being price driven with very low margins for us. We get to make a lot of friends when it comes to the retailer industry and to the on-premise whether it's the wait staff or bartenders are more passionate or sounds passionate about selling the vice and talking to it to the consumer about it. That's a huge way. That's a very important way to reach the final consumer. And obviously, uh, you know, like we shout now the traditional channels of social media, word of mouth, in person. As I said, I travel a lot. I meet people everywhere I go, trying to make sure I introduce myself to everybody, whether they're a janitor at the airport or wherever I go. It's like I'm trying to like spread the word about who we are, what I do, wherever I go. And lastly, we've been very blessed and, and honestly very grateful and thankful for wine publications that gave us the opportunity to taste our wines, whether it's Spectator, Enthusiast, James Suckland, I mean, so not, not to leave anybody behind, but everyone that 
accepted to uh, taste our wines and, you know, we don't advertise with any of them. And we received so many great ratings and accolades and reviews over the years. And those reviews helped us get on a page somewhere, you know, the name device get to be seen on an ongoing basis by uh, wine enthusiasts in this industry that do care about those ratings. That's a very important thing for us. And it's, I will say it's very organic as well. And is there any specific marketing tactic that you think has been most successful in targeting and speaking to millennials and Gen Z? Specific tactic, simplifying really what wine is and not making it you know, there's many ways to speak about wine. You can't really talk about wine to the same way almost you're talking to Gen Z and millennials and when you speak to baby boomers. With baby boomers, it's almost like it's one type of experience. It's Maybe it's about the sense of place, the craft, how it's made. With millennials for us and Gen Z, we want them to discover and learn more, not just about the vice or about Napa Valley, really about the wine industry, about wine. We are ambassadors. I'm an ambassador for the entire wine industry. I don't see myself as competing with anybody first. So first, I'm not salesy when it comes to them. But two, we kind of play on our name, the vice. So we pair the vice wines with a lot of vices. I've done things from starting with pairings versus starting to talk about varietal and terroir and how it's made. We just like talk about the taste profile, simplify it, use different words, different vocabulary that may not be used in the wine industry prior. And maybe for some, it may be even not traditional at all to describe wine and also pair it with different vices, like in certain markets and certain instances, you know, people are enjoying cannabis and I'm all about sativa and my certain varietals and indica of the varietals. If you want to combine the two vices, no problem with that. Whether it's different candy or different type of pairings, ice cream or whatever, that's something to embrace and not to be shy of. What are the different vices you pair with? I think that's kind of an interesting topic. I could imagine that could range from like cigars and tobacco to cannabis to chocolate to guns i mean i don't know yeah (laughs) (laughs) well (laughs) you know you'd uh yeah you'd expect that one in texas but i haven't had success with that yet no you know to me the way i see the pairings i go back to the senses and vision is our strongest sense is what takes the most of our brain capacity then there's hearing we rely on audiovisual more than anything every day. The sense of smell is our third strongest smell is what tastes of on smell and the sense of taste is based on smell. So they're kind of linked. And our sense of smell is actually linked more to memory and emotion than than other senses. And it's kind of fading over time. So for me, I like to pair the sense of smell with other things. It really depends. It can be like from listening to instrumental hip hop, maybe not the words, because don't, I don't want the distraction of the words with the wine, but being able to put the right tune, the right beat, the right, yeah, the right beat, I'll say instrumental with just wine and then taste wine for three minutes, you know, take time to taste a wine for two, three minutes and see how the experience is combining the two. Don't hold me up to it, but I've done things with like bachelorette parties. They want to have 
they want to talk about wine and they want to have fun. And, you know, we've done sex toys and wines, for example, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, we've done again, cannabis and uh, certain strains of cannabis are edibles with certain varietals of wine. So to me, it's more about the experience and being able to make it about wine at the end of the day without starting, well, this is how it's grown and the climate that year and all that stuff is detail that the current consumer may not care about. So I've heard you sometimes market to less popular markets like Staten Island. How effective is that? And what does the ROI look like for a market visit to there compared to, you know, Manhattan or somewhere else? Probably the borough out of like the five boroughs in New York that I had the most success was Staten Island. Like success rates almost of 90%. And the reason for that many reasons, but the main reason to me for that was no one is paying attention to them. It's like the forgotten borough. And when you walk into a store or you walk into a restaurant and you introduce yourself, they have all the time in the world for you. They don't have 10 people lined up like it may happen in Manhattan where everybody's trying to like get in and sell to the retailer or the restaurant, the psalm, they're trying to sell them the wine, compete and fight them over that shelf space or, the, or that real estate on the wine list. I like to go against the grain, you know, and a lot of things that we do. As people right now, and not to get off topic, but people may, right now, a lot of these big suppliers or a lot of wineries are focused on the higher end, higher end. We're actually going, okay, let's try to actually double down, be more value, although we have the higher end expensive wines too. So if people are going to the Hamptons this time of year, because this is when the season starts, I'm going to the Hamptons at the end of the season. And I'm actually going to go during the slow season when no one is around and show and give appreciation and show time to the industry when it most matters, when nobody is. You know, that's one thing I really encourage a lot of people to do. A lot of uh, suppliers in the industry, don't be afraid to go to areas where traditionally they haven't been good areas for sales. You know, like we're talking a little bit about New York, but we did really well in the Bronx. We did really well in certain areas where we are the only Napa Valley wine in the store. And how dare any distributor or supplier to think that the consumer is not looking for Napa Valley wine. You know, they're only looking for a certain brown spirits or certain style of wines. It's like, no, it's like, and you know, like I want to be there, of course. And it may be the velocity may not be as fast as in certain areas in Brooklyn, but there is a consumer anywhere you go that's looking to uh, learn, discover about wine. And they're looking for a brand like us to help them discover the category and to answer to their needs. Great. That's a great spot to, to wrap up the episode, but we do like to wrap up the episode, Malik, on a personal note. What was the most memorable wine you've drank in the last year and who did you drink it with? Well, I drank a lot. <laughs> so, and I don't drink to forget, but I forget a lot what I drank. The most memorable. Sometimes the person or the event, the occasion is easier to think of and then walk backwards to the wine. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you actually, and it's so funny that this is going to go back to Staten Island. The person that got me into wine was my father, who was a huge wine enthusiast. And at the age of eight, he made me start to smell wine. And, you know, at an earlier age at 11 or so, we, I, I went with him to Paris and he gave me a, a sip of Dom Perignon and whatnot. I haven't seen him in many, and I haven't really spent time with him in many years, especially throughout pandemic. 
And he emailed me out of nowhere about six weeks ago. And he said, I'm in New York. You know, I don't want you to tell anybody, but I'm actually I'm going to the hospital. I came here to get treated, but I want you to tell your brothers. I don't want to tell any family members because I don't want anybody to worry. And I answered him back. I said, it happened. I just landed in New York. And out of all places, he was in Staten Island. So I met him at a restaurant called the Lucas in Staten Island. And, um, you know, he didn't really drink much, but he had a sip of wine of the vice, the house got, and it meant so much to him. And it made so much to me that, you know, I was able to uh, enjoy a drink with him. Oh, that's a great touching story. To, and, and you struggled to think of something and it's such a great story. So it's, I'm glad you were able to share that. Thank it's you. wonderful to hear. And honestly, thank you for sharing so much information about how the vice is doing stuff a little differently, especially in a classic region like Napa Valley and all the way down to how you're marketing the wine. It was great to hear. And I think a lot of our listeners will get a lot of value out of that. So thank you for sharing all this information. Thank you for your time. If you guys come up to Napa, I'd love to host you. You know, for everybody else, same thing. Please visit us here in Napa. Visit us on device.com or just reach out to us uh, through our social media. I'd love to answer any questions that you have about device, Napa Valley, or just about wine in general. Thanks again. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.